that's the metric that most people, when they're especially getting into PM for the first time, think about. Like the success metric for if this feature is good is how many people use this feature. So we're very, very end user focused. If we see a feature that network admins are like, oh, this is like a little bit uncomfortable for us, yet we see like engagement spike, we're going to ship that feature. So this almost sounds like a perfect world per product. We have a strong thesis that the person closest to the work should have the final say. So if we've got opinions, let's go with mine. If we've got data, let's use it. Can't you just make data say anything that you want it to say? I mean, I can make SQL do a lot of things. This may be the least product management podcast yet. Hi, I'm Craig Kirsteins. And I'm Remus Silkaitis. And you're listening to Practical Product, a bi-weekly series where we discuss product management and some of the unique challenges we face in dealing with defining the right product and all of the coordination necessary to help teams build it right. Practical Product is brought to you by HeavyBit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us at practicalproduct at heavybit.com or on Twitter at practicalprod. All right, awesome. And we're, uh, we're back this week for our next episode. This week we've got a guest with us, uh, Anna Marie from Yammer. You want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thanks. Uh, my name is Anna Marie Clifton. I'm a product manager at Yammer. Uh, pretty recent there. been there for about six months, so I'm spending all my time learning all of the things and soaking up like a sponge. Uh, before that, I did a bit of an apprenticeship at Asana in product management. And then before that, a uh, couple, actually a developer-facing tiny startup, five people, Hacka Labs, and a couple of things before that. And then long before, I was doing gallery management in New York City. Interesting. I did not know that last bit. Let's see if we can tie a little bit of that back into product <laughs> management. But um, we'll, we'll get there. Um, cool. So you're at Yammer, interesting company, acquired a while ago. Right. Like You're Microsoft now, right? Uh, sort of. So we're part of Microsoft. Uh, Yammer has about 250 employees. In the Microsoft org, we report up through Microsoft, and there's some interesting realities that come through uh, when you are reporting to a mega org of, you know, a hundred thousand plus. Uh, it's also really interesting because uh, at Yammer we run on Yammer, and we kind of exist in our product, which is a workplace collaboration tool. And the Yammer network is now the Microsoft network internally. So in my internal like workplace collaboration tool, there are a hundred thousand people on the network, which is really interesting. But yeah, we've been a part of. Microsoft for about four years, so long before I joined. Cool. So I think that's pretty interesting because I mean, okay, uh, Yammer's in this space. I would say, like, to me, there's one interesting thing there. You don't have revenue. You you like are part of Microsoft. Microsoft obviously has revenue. I, I think they know how to generate revenue, but you're in this like indirect line, right? Right, absolutely, and it's it's really fascinating as product managers who aren't tied to any revenue line. Uh, we are only ever judged by our engagement numbers. Internally. Wait, wait, wait. So you're telling me you're not charging for your product at all? So there's basically no way to buy Yammer on it on its own. You buy the Microsoft Office suite, like the O365 suite, and you get Yammer, and like the lowest level SKU comes with Yammer. So if anyone who's buying like Microsoft Word online, they get mm-hmm. Yammer with it. Ooh. Right? So there's there's almost no way that you can tie like, well, which percentage of this seat is actually going to be using Yammer? Which percentage of this sale can we attribute to? Isn't the Yammer? correct answer 100 percent in those cases? Yeah, when I you think can't we're making it, like it would. <laughs> there's always a like when in doubt, go ahead and claim credit for the bigger amount. Right, right. Well, we all report up through the same org, and so those revenue numbers are being generated from all of the the products in the suite, and there's just dozens, right? And so, uh, and there's a huge sales force. I mean, the, the other interesting thing about not being tied directly to revenue, we're also not connected directly to our sales. 
Salesforce. So we have the the Microsoft Office Salesforce selling Yammer, but we have almost no direct communication with them, right? So like even even talking to our Salesforce about what Yammer is and making sure they're messaging the right thing and like when to use this tool as opposed to other tools in the collaboration suite is a really fascinating challenge. For so those it, not in the room, Remus looks really confused. I, I'm still I'm still kind of confused here yeah. because does this mean that Yammer then gets attached to a sale when you know customers have hit certain you know thresholds like i'm thinking about tiering out right. various sales right so yammer is in the lowest tier oh, so okay. there's there's almost no way to buy anything from microsoft without getting yammer with it ooh right uh, so yammer is kind of a it's a cross suite collaboration tool so that we're embedded in a lot of the other tools so if you get sharepoint you have yammer the core product but then also cuz it's it's embedded in sharepoint so there's all these cross suite integrations and so it's very difficult to have any part of the suite without having yammer as well because we're just kind of in the whole system i'm with craig then you attribute everything to <laughs> to yammer 100% of the revenue 100% of the users 100% of the revenue it sounds good a win uh, so uh, I mean, this is this is interesting to me because uh, it's it's not a consumer focused one where you care about adoption, right? Like, no, it's it not, is. But it's but you still have businesses as customers, right? So that's the interesting thing is that we have so we think about two different user types. So we have customers and we have users, and they're different. And customers are who pays, right? Customers are the IT buyers. Customers are the network admins. Customers are we have a whole network where we like communicate directly with our customers all the time. We almost never develop features based on anything that comes out of that network. We're only ever developing features based on usage patterns that we see in the data from end users. So we're very, very end user focused. If we see a feature that network admins are like, oh, this is like a little bit uncomfortable for us, yet we see like engagement spike up, spike up, not down, uh, <laughs> we're going to ship that feature. Uh, and we also do a lot of A-B testing on the user level, which is another thing. There's just a, a whole slew of things that we do because we maintain a user focus that's to perhaps the chagrin of the network admins and the customers. Um, so we, we do talk to customers a lot, we listen to them, and we try to understand what their problems are, um, but we very rarely do what they exactly want. We're not very customer-driven. That almost sounds counter to I think almost everything in product management saying like the person writing the check is the one you want to make sure they're happy right mm-hmm. and the user especially the one that's free and not paying who cares so the point of, of having Yammer and the point of using Yammer in your network is cross communication in the entire org right and so it's it's information discovery through from one section of your org to an entire different section and so that only works if the users are using it and putting information into the system so the whole thing falls apart if you build something that the admin networks that they admins want like locked groups, they want private content, they want things to be by default close, 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 close. They sound like awful people. No, I mean that's that's like <laughs> if you want if you're being charged with um, handling harassment or like handling things like that, you want more and more tools to like lock things down, shut it down, shut it down, to like prevent it from becoming an issue. Whereas if you want to promote more sharing and responsiveness within the org, you have to build things that like by default groups are public, right? And like that's something that like a lot of admins would like a toggle where they can change that so that for their network because. They of course think that for the network it's going to be different, but when you change that default, then all of a sudden you like siphon off the access to information that other people have, and the whole product stops functioning. I just want to be clear though that you're not saying that a customer is not necessarily a user as well, right? They they still have other needs that can be met and features that could be built as part of what they need. I'm thinking about things like billing or consolidated things. Well, granted, you're not 
charging anything. But. Right. So the, the way the Yammer product management org is structured, we have a specific department explicitly for handling customer concerns mm-hmm. uh, and market concerns like that. And that's a particular PM who owns that and has um, staffing allocation for those kinds of concerns. Uh, so we do things like uh, we're working on EU data centers and things like that, which is a customer concern. No end user engagement metric is ever going to say, hey, you need EU data centers. <laughs> <laughs> what metric would tell you that? Uh, you're never going to see that in the data. So we have that set aside and protected within the org. And then the rest of the PMs are kind of agnostic. Like We all float between mobile and web and email and all the other things. Um, we switch that up depending on uh, whatever initiative we think is most valuable at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that area of the org works on that area forever, kind of unlocking and unblocking that. Cool. That sounds pretty interesting. All right, I'm, I'm reasonably convinced <laughs> because you don't care about revenue. Um, someone else <laughs> does. That engagement is the right metric. How are you, how are you measuring it? Like, Is it just like... Time in the system overall, like what's what's your top metric there? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So we actually don't think that spending time in the system or having long sessions is super valuable for users. Our top metric is days engaged. So the number of days in a given period of time that you, as a unique user, logged in. So for a week, your max days engaged could be seven, right? So it's a very noiseless. It's a kind of a binary metric. So you want people to work on the weekends? No, we don't want people to work on the weekends. <laughs> <laughs> But okay, time right. active to like a, a recurring active user. Uh, yeah, recurring active user. So we we see if if you are a days engaged user, if you're a 21 days engaged user in a month, like you're using the product for work, right? Like at that point, it's part of your workflow. We see that you log in. It's uh, it's something that you're checking. So that's our our absolute top line. We look at a lot of retention metrics. There's a funny story around two week retention and. Uh, what what is two week retention versus week two retention? So there's about five different ways to measure or define like second week retention. Is it on day fourteen? Is it at any point between day seven and day fourteen? Is it any point? I mean, there's like so many different floating ways. So we do look at two week retention as a pretty strong marker in uh, enterprise collaboration. Um, and which of those? Measures of two weeks did you settle so on? Because it sounds like there's some really deep analysis on yeah, this. Yeah, absolutely. Which is really interesting when everyone in the org is talking about our two week retention numbers, and you find out in a product all hand meeting that we're talking about five different things, and the the analysts know exactly what they're describing, and the PMs are hearing something different, and the designers are hearing a third thing. So the way we define two week retention is is a rolling. So given your start date, did you log in at any point between day seven and day fourteen? So it's second week retention. Okay. All right. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> so I was thinking through that there. Um, interesting. So you you kind of bucket it so that you don't care about the weekday. You full week anytime in there works. Right. Because if you, I mean, so you, your seat could be activated by a network admin who's in a different time zone than you. Okay. And it could be on a weekend for your weekend. So we we don't t- tend to tie like seven days after you logged in or after your account was activated. Did you come back? Uh, we look at some time in that second week. Are you still retained? Okay. Now, where did you get to two weeks? Like, yeah, like, why, why two there? weeks? Why not three weeks? Why not one? Like, yeah. Where, it sounds like there was quite a bit of data analysis to go into that, too. Right. So, so this metric was established before I joined. Uh, I know that in, the, in me trying to understand the metric, I uncovered that three different people in my reporting chain had different definitions of it. Uh, so we had some, some clarity discussions around that. Uh, I think it's, I mean, if you, if you think about a product that you use and how likely you are to come back within a one week, Work week context uh, that changes a lot the next week, 
Like the work week is kind of bucketed by this this Monday to Friday thing. And there's kind of some continuity within a one Monday through Friday chunk. And so coming back in another chunk of that uh, is a pretty good indicator. Of the Like it's an early indicator of sticking power. And one of the reasons for looking at early indicators is we don't want to have to have tests run for a very long time in order to know if you can ship something especially because we're testing things at the user level and not the network level. I have so many questions on so many anomalies of like what happens about the holiday week, the Thanksgiving week, right. do you change the metric just for that time? Right, or, the, or August when all of all of Europe goes on vacation in August. You should see our August numbers there. It's always like, by the way, you should know, like this is August, we have tons of users in Europe and like we see massive dips whenever we're talking to people in the US about it because they don't understand as much. <laughs> this is when you hire the data scientist, right? I mean, or 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 we just hire you, Craig, right? Your, your SQL <laughs> skills are paramount, right? All, that's all. It's all SQL. That's all it is. Um, yeah. So I, we can probably save digging too much deeper into the metrics because yeah. I think Remus and I could go on for a while about yeah. this. Um, oh, I love it too. It's super interesting, and I think all sorts of anomalies comparing year over year, month over month, all mm. sorts of things. But it, it does make a lot of sense that in a business setting, if they come back the second week, they are actively engaged with the product. It's a good driver for future engagement. What's the the next kind of level down of factor of thing you're measuring. Like, mm-hmm. are you looking at everything that you do? Like, does it affect this number? Are you A-B testing that? Like, what level of testing you're doing? Like, what are the other metrics that lead into that? Or right. is that just the one that you pay attention to? Right. So I talked to people who want to get into project management or people who are getting advice on interviews they're getting ready for about this concept a lot. So we think a lot about the difference between global metrics and local metrics when we're testing. And days engaged second week retention, and there's a couple, there, there are two other, um, like a posting binary metric, which I can talk about if you want me to dig into that. So we have basically four kind of core global metrics, and we want to see any test that we do affect those in some level, unless we're trying to ship something for strategic reasons or code com- decomplexity reasons. So those are global metrics, uh, and ostensibly anything that you test will have local metrics, like did they push the button? And that's the metric that most people, when they're especially getting into PM for the first time, think about. Like the success metric for if this feature is good is how many people use this feature. But what you want to be able to see is that the people who use this feature actually saw their global metrics go up as well. And so we structure our hypotheses by uh, here is the the change that we're affecting in the product. Here is the local metric that we expect to change. And then based on this assumption about this change in local metric, this is why we think it's going to affect a global metric. And so when you're looking at a test result and you're looking at your local metrics and they're all going up and your global metrics are going down, that tells you that your assumption was wrong. And if you're looking at your test results and you see that everything's flat, both local and global metrics, that tells you that users didn't find it or didn't think it was useful from the outside. And if you see your local metrics are flat but your global metrics are up, that tells you something's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, you, That's where you really want to kind of dig in. I'm I'm kind of curious with you know given the size of the organization and you talk about global metrics how do you parse out how your changes affect the global metrics when you've got you know any number of other PMs releasing things at the same time. If it's positive, it's yours. If it's negative, <laughs> it's someone else's. So we're looking at global metrics within the confines of an A-B test. So we're looking at the control group and their global metrics, and we're looking at the treatment group and their mm-hmm. global metrics. And we want to see the treatment group global metrics go up relative to the control group. So if our random, if our randomization is good, we shouldn't see a lot of cross pollination. Uh, we do always check that, uh, and we do. Our analysts are always aware of other experiments that are going on in the same area of the product that could interact with that. I've run like 
six tests so far, and I haven't had anything come up as an interaction, a potential interaction mm-hmm. effect. We always check: are there any potential interaction effects that are in the same area? And then we always check our randomizations, and our, our analysts do an amazing job of uh, checking those distributions and making sure that we don't happen to have a strange distribution where most of the people in the control are in Europe, or there's even like a larger percentage of them in Europe than in the rest of the world. Uh, so we're watching things like that all the time. <laughs> so this this almost sounds like a perfect world for like a uh, for product. There's a two week time frame for you to run a test roughly to start to see the impact. You're measuring the actual thing that you care about, the top line metric. For most people, this is probably revenue, but in your case, you know uh, that two week metric makes sense. Like uh, it should always be this easy, right? Like what? <laughs> I, I wish, but do you have to like do a lot of planning before? Because you talk about bringing in other analysts and other things like that. I mean, yes, two week period sounds great and all, but. Do you have infinite resources with your analysts? Do you have to plan three weeks ahead of time to actually get your test in? I mean, right. We have, okay, so I, I do kind of live in a world that's a bit of an embarrassment of riches at Yammer. So we have user researchers that inform us when we're thinking about a spec. Oh, we've, we've done some research here. Think about this kind of usability stuff. We have analysts that'll look at our spec early, and they're almost the first people we get involved when we're talking about hypotheses that will validate if it's significantly um, falsifiable or not. And they'll like, Point us to what we might want to think about in terms of adding log events that we might not have thought of. Our designers, great UX designers as well. Then once we start working with engineers, the analysts are already ready. They're working with the engineers as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the shipping of the experiment is only ever gated on the engineering time. The analysts are never a bottleneck there. Or I've never seen them be a bottleneck. And then the the amazing thing is all of the analysts are just product analysts. They don't do any pipeline engineering or data work like that. We have an entire section of the org. Um, the Avocado team, Avocado is our internal experiment reporting team, that is now part of Microsoft writ large. And that was actually, people talk a lot about that was a big part of the acquisition, was getting this team to teach Microsoft how to do data. Uh, and ha- and so wow. they actually now support all the experiment reporting for all of Microsoft's online products. And so we have like this entire data tooling team that was built out at Yammer. I mean, it's, it's dozens of people. And we've invested so much over the course of even pre-acquisition into data tooling. So we were able to have analysts just help us work on that. So, wow. That all sounds great. Well, luckily um, I've got a Craig, so I don't need a whole analyst well, team. How, <laughs> what is your advice to someone that doesn't have that set up, that doesn't walk into that? How do you how do you create it or how do you cheat and get some of some of these benefits? Because that is a, a well-oiled machine that took years and years and years to build. And yeah. I suspect there was some interesting influence in the very early days of Yammer. Yeah. But like how how do I get that now at a ten-person startup? Right. So the the folklore for why why it existed at Yammer is that uh, it was the only way that people had to push back against the personality of David Sachs. So if you ever wanted to not do something that David Sachs wanted to do, you had to have a lot of data to back it up. And so the org put a lot of resources into building out this data tooling so that they could like kind of stand up to him. And there's like a lot of folklore around it. So, so if we've got opinions, let's go with mine. If we've got data, let's use it. Exactly. Yes. And so you have to it, when you have as strong an opinion as that in the room, it will create kind of this vacuum where on the other side you've got to like build something up. And so there were a lot of really strong personalities who said, "Okay, we we don't agree with you necessarily and the only thing that we can do, Mr. CEO, is like build out the data tooling to prove it. So a lot of this was built to like prove David Sachs wrong about various things, and this is like kind of common knowledge in the org. I've heard anecdotally that other orgs build this up because CTOs are very data like interested. There's like this this interest in having like a binary yes or no if something's good or bad, and in the the absence of like this product fluid intuition space, if you have a like an engineering heavy org, you might be able to push that through on the engineering side. We're like, hey, no, we really want to have answers to things. We don't want to just guess. Uh, but it, it depends. I mean, I've uh, so I think we uh, made it a record of 
15 to 20 minutes into the podcast before we said it depends. So I just wanted to, to point that out. Uh, this may be the the least product management podcast yet. <laughs> <laughs> it depends. We we still have plenty more time to go. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of not depending. That's well, my, that, my, my actually. I was going to interject and say, doesn't it depend on you know the the size of the organization that you're working with? One and two, can't you just make data say anything that you want it to say? You can. Uh, I have. I have. What is it? There's there's three times three types of lies. Lies, damn lies, and statistics. That's sure. Let's go with it. Yeah. There's like okay. So my mother was an actuary, so I've heard this this story anecdotally uh, growing up. There's, there's. I mean, I can make SQL do a lot of things, right? <laughs> um, it's really, really hard to make SQL tell you that people are engaging in the product more days on average in one group than the other. I think you underestimate some people's ability to write bad SQL. But <laughs> <laughs> right. So there's a lot of. I mean, there's a lot of people that are checking. Um, and obviously, at some point, like I, as a product manager, uh, take a lot of things on faith from my analyst team, where I'm not going to go and like double check things. I'm certainly like, I'll r- jump in and, and query if I have like, oh, how many people are touching this button? I'm thinking about changing or something like that. But I'm not going to do really complex queries on my own, and I'm not going to like check other people's. I don't have that skill. Certainly. So one thing I'm hearing though is like that. Top line metric is very, very, very important. Mm-hmm. That it's a very clear one. It's intuitive. People understand it. Mm-hmm. Especially, it sounds like with the debate around the two week engagement time frame. Like, yeah, defining the 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 metric is incredibly important. Absolutely, and it's also it's really important that everyone in the entire org is really fluent about this. So when we have our product all hands, our designers will ask about p values if we don't put our p values in a report. For yeah, they'll be like, oh you, yeah, you have that metric lift there, but what's the p value on that? I don't see that. So if the entire org is thinking that way, it's it's really easy to spot errors in in your work. Yeah, I was talking actually to our, our head of UX about this, where she was arguing for the Yammer way is that you've, you've already got so many people who are invested in it, and when you when you onboard a new person to the org, like learning about this this data mindset is a big part of that, uh, and you just kind of like breathe that in. It's really mm-hmm. it's really hard to slip things past people when everyone in the org is like ah something smells fishy there. So does data only make sense for for features or work that you're doing for you know workflows or things that are known already? Because what mm-hmm. I'm, what I'm thinking about are you know you at some point or maybe even not I don't know you have to build something entirely new and you have no sense of what that might affect. Yeah, yeah. You and, talked and about you, that early on. You glossed over the like uh, we we don't do something unless the data says to do it. Unless it's strategic, right? So there are. Oh, I should have. I should have brought this with me. We have a uh, the seven reasons to ship something, and data is one of them. What are the other six? Because so we've talked a lot up. about data, right? Of course. Uh, so data is the core. Um, so decomplexity is a reason to ship something. So if we test a feature that removes a lot of code complexity, so not you, not necessarily UI complexity, although that's also a win sometimes, but specifically code complexity. If we have a really outdated algorithm or like we have this black box that not really many people in the org even understand anymore, if we can test removing it and it doesn't hurt metrics, we'll remove that. So we do a lot of work to try to remove things over time. And that's, I mean, Yammer's been around since, was it 2009, I think? I mean, it's... Sounds about right. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's in terms of enterprise collaboration, Cloud SaaS software in that niche. Um, that's really old, uh, and and there's something really interesting that happens with workflows where you, people will will build out how they're working around your product, and so changing that over time becomes more and more difficult as you've added more that people are kind of calcified around uh, in that in their workflow, and so trying to keep things fresh and trying to keep people who are like 
up to date on the entire code base is, is a big challenge. Uh, so we try to keep that clean as possible and remove things as often as we can. So does that mean that that's mutually exclusive from data as part of the other reasons for why you might ship something? Right. Now we always specify in the spec if we're going to ship it regardless of what the data outcomes are. Okay. So I've had a few specs where I've specified something that we're trying to get for parity in our Android and iOS clients. So okay, we're if this is a flat test on Android, we're going to ship it because it brings parity between iOS and Android and that helps us with velocity later on and we don't have to think about these two different clients um, and maintaining like different realities. If we ever want to ship something and not because of data, we specify in the spec in advance that we're planning on doing that. So then if somebody else comes to you with some data, they can totally override that? Uh, if they come with data that says what? No, we would specify if we're going to ignore the data. Okay. Um, And if it gets really complicated when you try and specify that we think that this is a UI pattern that's better for our users, obviously the blinking light is going to make them click on something, but we don't want to like become Vegas, right? (laughs) I love Vegas though. (laughs) But do you love Vegas in your workplace collaboration software? Mm, depends on how boring <laughs> I mean, my fair, workplace is. They have disabled the blink tag from from browsers. Oh, right, so, the actual like, it's not blink even tag. an option these days. It's <laughs> it is it is fully gone now. Now marquee does still work, so there might be some <laughs> options to work around that. I don't even know what that is. You don't know what the marquee tag is? No. Oh man, I'm oh, too I'm oh. too young. <laughs> we just dated ourselves, Craig. <laughs> we did. I didn't know. <laughs> and you thought you were dataing yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Uh, so, what's the balance between like the how often do you ignore data? Because like to me, I'm I would just say like this is a strategic decision, right? Every time, like, right? I'm a strategy guy. I have big picture in mind. So, how do like data doesn't matter in this case, right? So, I'm definitely more on the in the weeds level. So, I'll give an example of a feature. So, we had we had kind of a jarring feature in the product that was just kind of bugged us all and everyone was like, "Oh, that just like we look at it and just makes us go, mm, why do we have this in our product? It's blinking basically at our users." So, I was trying to design a way to remove that without tanking metrics because we had tried just removing it and it hit engagement pretty bad. So, like, okay, let's see what we can do. Um, so, we t- actually I tested a couple different variants, one that was really subtle and one that was like halfway between. And in this, I did a lot of kind of scenario planning around how do we validate if the, the subtle one is loses by a little bit, but not by a lot, we'd rather ship that. Because we think the subtle is better long term for users' perception of the product and we just would prefer to not have to support a slightly more garish how many people are in like that decision? Like who? Like that sounds like when anytime like given the culture, the right. strong focus on data. Right. When we say ah, we're gonna make this call despite what the data says. I envision okay. committee meetings, and, right? No, you know, all the way up to the chief product officer or something, right? No, we're definitely. I mean, in this case, this was my decision, and I had to validate. I, I knew that that was that was what my my gut was. Okay, if it's slightly worse to ship the subtle version, we're going to ship the subtle version as long as it's close to control. Or, but if the the garish version is a lot better than the subtle version, and they're both better than control, like how how do you validate that? So that sounds good to talk about with like a little bit, a lot. But what is that in actual numbers? Like, how does that translate into like? Raw numbers, and that's something I spent like a fair amount of time digging, like all through the interwebs, all through past projects, and like has any product manager here ever specified a point where we were gonna take metric losses and then validate what the threshold of that is? And it was really, really complicated to try and find. I ended up balancing it on 
the so we knew when we just removed the feature to begin with what the metrics hits were and so I was like okay so that percentage is definitely below our threshold so we're going to say anything less than half of that percentage is going to be at the threshold and so I, I like put all of these numbers in the spec and I'm like I had multi, multiple variants being tested and so there's lots of different ways different things can move and then the even within the global metrics we have two different global metrics that we're really watching and so then there's like new users and existing users and you start getting into segments and all of that so I had like all of this all spreadsheeted out and I was like here are like the five most uh, expected paths that I think this could go through and given each of these five results here's what we're going to do and the and it, oh happy day the one that I expected to happen the most happened to a T and I had like kind of fleshed out that where I expected even some local metrics to go like down and some to go up and point into a lot of different things and built out a narrative around that and that narrative came true so it was really convenient that the one I had done all the work <laughs> around defining actually like happened in the metrics but it, it, it took a lot of work and a lot of managing up through you know up to the head of product and I had to tell him at one point like hey sorry this is this is my decision and it's actually exactly counter to your decision but I think it's very important and here's why that was terrifying can you can can you dig into that and like that disagreement between the two and how you manage just well maybe not the two of in that situation particularly but just in general how do you deal with disagreement I've I've heard data is one thing but just from like you know the day in day out of being a PM how do you handle that with engineering staff analysts whoever else right and I think especially even about disagreeing with designers that's that's the, one of the most um, subtle and delicate ones that a PM has to manage uh, when it comes to disagreeing with people that you report up through. The power structure is such that you're going to bring a lot of evidence to say, "Hey, here's here's why I disagree, and it's X Y Z, and like and A B C, mm-hmm. and all of that." And our management structure is very open to listening to that. We have a strong thesis that the person closest to the work should have the final say, and that's great. It gets really complicated when you disagree with someone on your actual project team, and most so when you disagree with a designer. And I found this to be true in several t- cases that designers have a tendency to be. Like, they're oftentimes really emotionally attached to their work, and so disagreeing with their work can feel like disagreeing with them. And even by just the very nature, especially at Yammer, by the very nature of being a PM, you are looking for evidence to back up your reasons, mm-hmm. uh, and designers aren't really in that mindset. So I found this, um, I had some some difficulty with this early on, and I've, I've landed on a paradigm that I really like about dis- disagreeing with Ooh, designers. Tell, tell me more. This is my uh, my, my revelation. I had a, a really particular con- a contentious disagreement where I saw kind of from a distance that, that I really disagreed with my designer on something. And I knew that if I came into the room and said, hey, I disagree, you disagree, let's hash it out, that I would just end up barreling over this designer. Because there's, there's almost no way that someone who doesn't come with a lot of like evidence-based Thinking is going to be able to stand up to my evidence-based thinking, and so you win. Uh, and so you win, right? Cool. <laughs> However, I'm not seeing the problem yet, right? So the thing is, a win for me is not necessarily a win for our users. Okay, so so it's stepping back, being the adult in the room, saying like, it matters that we make the right decision, not that I can just. Bulldozes. Right, absolutely. And I find that the more... This sounds less fun, but keep going. <laughs> but it's, it's very core to how I think about working uh, in, in project teams, is that the, the firmer you hold on to your opinion, the more that you mandate that the other person digs their heels in, because it's the only way that they can kind of stand up to that energy that you have. So if you actually want either of you to arrive at the best decision, you have to kind of let go of your opinion and kind of step aside from it 
And instead of looking at here's why I think this is right, step aside from like your opinion and meet your designer like somewhere in a space that's outside of like who who believes what. So I, I, I went through this exercise with a designer a few weeks ago that was really, really, really effective and very healthy. It felt great. Uh, where I walked into a room and I said, Hey, we could we could whiteboard about this decision, you know, until the cows come home. We could just like dig our heels in and argue and argue and argue. And we know that we could do that. And in the end, I'd probably win because I'm just gonna come with more arguments at you and you're not gonna be at some point you're gonna get exhausted by that and you're going to just want it to stop. Uh, so, so let's not do that. Let's like set aside our opinions. And you let's... just took away my fun, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, let's set aside our opinions and talk about, I mean, let's go really basically back to the user. So I'm going to define the user that I think we're building for and you can define the user that you think we're building for and then let's see at the points that we disagree at because there's, there's something underneath what we believe because we both have our user's best interest at heart. There's obviously something much, much deeper that we disagree on. So let's try and start at like the absolute first principle and like build up from there and then see where we diverge. And we ended up finding two different points where we diverged about like our core assumptions on their users. And we were able to build up a quick usability test or well, kind of a click test actually with user research to figure out which one was more accurate. And she won. It was we we did a <laughs> we had a six person usability test. We had six people come in, try a prototype. And uh, six out of six were like completely on her side, like not even ambiguously on her side. They were like confused by my idea, and my idea was also the one that like my manager wanted my idea, the head of our initiative wanted my idea, our head of product wanted our idea, the head of design wanted my idea. Like the only person on the other side of this idea was this designer, and all the users. So it sounds like a, a deeper way of reframing of the like a, a, one of my favorite question is like what problem are we trying to solve here? What are we building for? What are we like stepping back and saying? Why are we doing this and what and and who for, right? Like a reframing of it from first principles. Yeah, absolutely. And trying to find like the absolute lowest level that you can start to build from because why we thought we wanted to do it, we had had a few discussions about and we couldn't find anything that we really disagreed on other than like I thought mine was better and she thought hers was better. And so it was like, okay, let's just like go into the like the deepest level we can find. Mm. Um, it's kind of like a five whys. Yep. Five whys starts at the top and goes yep. down. This one we we're like, okay, we think this is the bottom. Let's start here and then like build up the whys okay. and see at which point along the way we go different directions. I also feel as part of that, like you also need to create a psychological logically safe space so that you know when you're when you're saying these things or talking about this or even going down to the low level of uh, you know what problem are we re- really trying to solve if if either of you don't have that trust that you can say things that are divergent you probably even lose before you even get in the room is that is that a fair statement definitely I, the psychological safety is all the vogue, all the vogue. Is that even a phrase? All so, the vogue these probably. days. <laughs> but I think there is a, a counter there because, like, this sounds like a very nice, like, setup, establishment, sane discussion. But there is the other side where you do have the heated debates. Yeah, that, and that I mean that comes through with uh, the PM team and the analytics team. We get our like really healthy tension head to head. I think you're wrong. No, I think you're wrong. And we're both really prepared to have those conversations. And I think it's really healthy. I think that you want to promote that tension where both sides are kind of equally balanced and equally empowered in terms of how they're thinking in that way. So we definitely have that like, rah, like I'm, I'm gesturing with Sorry. my fists against each other. I can't, <laughs> you can't see that on the podcast, but it's uh, it can be it can be a lot of tension. And I've had a, I've had an analyst like flat out tell me, no, that's ridiculous. I can't believe you'd even think of that, basically. And then I, I've had I've said the same to them at one point. They were like trying to do something. I was like, that is insane. Like, why would we do that? So as um, long as both of, both sides can hang with it, yeah, like, that kind of tension can be healthy. Absolutely. And I think it, it is. Um, I mean, talk about psychological safety. It's like what makes you feel comfortable being your full self. 
And I think that the responsibility resides often with the PM to make sure that everyone on the team feels like they're in a place they can be their full self. And for analysts, that means that I'm comfortable being like, no, that is wrong. Because then they'll come back at me and say, no, that is wrong. Uh, and that that's their full self. And they feel really comfortable with that. Designers are like the designers that I've worked with. I've, I've had a couple at other companies that are more that way, but most of the designers at Yammer are not that way. And so like finding space for them to be their full self and like bring their full creativity uh, is, is, uh, is one of the tactics of, of being an effective PM. Wow, I feel like we could spend a whole other episode just on emotional intelligence, psychological safety, and bringing out the full self. I would Sounds like, like a lot listen. less fun to me. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to listen to that episode. <laughs> <laughs> so we mentioned a little bit on the like, you know, the designer approaching them one way. Sounds like you you had a nice private meeting there. Mm. Data analysts, PMs going at it. What happens when it's a little more complicated than that? And it's the middle of a meeting and there's 10 people in the room and you see the designer over there. And like, how do you handle those more complicated dynamics of a lot of parties? Like, how does that kind of come to fruition? Or is it always like a, let's move this to a one-on-one meeting? How do you handle those bigger dynamics? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the... uh Meeting dynamics are again part of the grit of what it means to be a good PM, and like managing that is, is a lot of times where our work happens. First of all, I think if you ever get into a meeting where individuals in the room don't know what's going to be talked about, or you you don't know the opinions that they're going to have, like you, you've already slipped up a bit. Uh, so we talk, especially going into like product review. If your head of product doesn't already know what it is that you think you're going to do. Like you have failed a little bit, and you're setting yourself up for a really dramatic ride. A little bit, probably a lot. A lot of bit. It's it's so dramatic. You walk into this, and you've like done all this work. You've got your analyst there. You've got your your researcher. You've got your I mean, the head of your initiative, like other PMs that are there, and the head of product like asks like three or four questions. They've never seen your stuff before. They ask three or four questions you're not anticipating. They don't know where you're going. You don't know where they're going. And then all of a sudden, you're on a roller coaster, and you're like trying to hold on. You're like asking your analyst to like look things up in real time as eject, you like, eject, yeah. eject. <laughs> It's, I have been in one and a half of those. And I, I actually had so my, my manager pulled me aside at one point. He's like, hey, okay, so here, here's, here's what you want to think about. Um, he's like, inception. You need to incept your ideas with like anyone who's going to be a stakeholder in the room long before you get into the room. Um, or if you're on the other side, you just grab some popcorn and you enjoy the show while it's happening to someone else. <laughs> exactly. Um, no, it's actually maybe more uncomfortable just to observe it, I think, than to be on the receiving end. Oh, God, um, like antsy, just kind of like squirming in your seat. You're like, oh, I feel for you. I've been there. Yeah, yeah, I've sat on one of those as well. So so it depends on and who we're talking about. So when we're talking about head of product or anyone who has um, like veto power or things like that in a product review setting, incepting is really important. Even the kickoff meetings with the whole team, getting the engineers, so the, the Yammer way we get a lot of the UX and hypothesis building set before we bring engineers on board. So when we do have that kickoff meeting with engineers get staffed and everything gets really expensive, making sure that they already know before that meeting what we're thinking about, that we've thought about some of the engineering constraints and like chatted with them offline about that. Very, very, very important. But when it comes to things in the meeting, I think one of the strongest skills a PM can bring into a meeting is identifying when something comes up, if it can be resolved there or if not. And if it cannot be resolved there, tabling it. So I've gotten really, really good at saying, okay, I think this is what you guys are discussing. I think this is the kind of thing that we're not going to be able to come to a decision about right now. I appreciate that we disagree on it. I'm going to schedule a separate discussion for this. And let's let's move forward on something that we can agree on. And I've, I've probably done that, I probably do that in every single meeting at this point And it now. sounds like it's heavily coupled too to like clearly saying what the goal of the meeting is from the outset, right? If you have that actual agenda, if people know why we're actually meeting versus 
it was on the calendar. Oh God, I hate that so much. I, I'm the biggest fan of meetings ending early. I'm the biggest fan of having as few meetings as possible. When I was at Asana, we have uh, no meeting Wednesdays where the entire org doesn't have meetings on Wednesdays. Like, let's just try to give people the, what is it, the IC's time versus the manager's time? Uh, makers, makers versus, yes. versus managers. Yeah. yeah, the manager's schedule and the maker's schedule. The maker's schedule, they need these blocks of time. So yeah, always, it was Thursday yeah. at Heroku. Yeah. Oh, really? You have no meeting Thursday? Yeah. Yeah, and like scheduling that, like even being thoughtful when you're scheduling your meetings to be like just before lunch or just after lunch, where you're already going to be interrupted at that point in time, and so you don't you don't end up like breaking apart an entire afternoon into separate chunks. So I'm I'm very very conscious when I'm scheduling a meeting that there's a clear agenda. People understand why we're going to be there. We st- like state at the beginning at what point we're going to leave the meeting. Like here are the things we want to figure out in this meeting, and then the meeting will be over. And I think I'd say at least eighty percent of my meetings I, I end early. There's no reason for us to spend the rest of the hour here. Like we've already figured out everything we need to be, and uh, we'll follow up online. Yeah, I think that's a huge tip for a lot of people. They don't realize just because it's on the calendar doesn't mean you have to keep going. Absolutely, and give that give those people that time back. Cool. Um, I think this was all super interesting and helpful. Like we covered a lot from data to discarding data to being nice to people. I don't quite follow that one. Psychological but, safety. Come yes. On. Okay. Cool. That sounds that sounds <laughs> a little better there. Um, Anything you want to leave with with guests, uh, listeners, before uh, taking off? Yeah, absolutely. The one thing I'm thinking most about right now is what I call 45 decisions, 55 decisions, which is if if you can't necessarily tell what's going to be the right way to go, it's kind of vague, 45 one way, 55 the other, and you can't tell where it splits, it's more effective to just make a decision then get that extra value from being sure which way to go. So drive for decisions, even if there's a little bit of ambiguity. If it's not a ton of ambiguity, it's better to just make a decision one way. The org will thank you later. Awesome. That's great advice. Anything else you want to plug? <laughs> I'll plug my, my, my product podcast. So I have a podcast I'm starting with Sandy McPherson called Clearly Product. We have a, a book club podcast where we read books about product management and then we get together and talk about it on a podcast, what we learned, big company PM, small company PM. Don't read the book yourself, listen to us. So if you don't get enough of it from us, uh, there's another source for your uh, product management uh, information. Clearlyproduct.com. Ooh. Thanks, guys. This is really great. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you have a PM topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us at practicalproduct at heavybit.com or on Twitter at practicalprod. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. 